healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Okay, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Uh, today, our guest is Dr. Neil Leibowitz from Talkspace. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So, here's the game plan. What we seek to do here on this show is challenge status quo purchasing and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you and Talkspace. So our audience has a little bit of context about uh, who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into the interview. Dr. Neil Leibowitz is a psychiatrist, attorney, and the chief medical officer at Talkspace Online Therapy, a technology company whose aim is to expand access to mental health care. At Talkspace, Dr. Leibowitz is responsible for managing clinical quality, building collaboration among providers, and overseeing the addition of psychiatry to the platform. Dr. Leibowitz also teaches health law at St. Francis College. He received his MD from New York Medical College, his JD from the New York University School of Law, and his BA in economics from John Hopkins University. He was previously a senior behavioral health medical director at United Healthcare and faculty member at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. All right. Anything uh, else you'd like to add to that uh, bio? Hopefully that's enough education for most people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that leads me to my my first question. I mean, you have an unusual background and probably more schooling than anyone we've ever had on this podcast in that you're an attorney and a psychiatrist. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and the evolution of how you came to work for a behavioral health startup. So first, I can't sit still. Um, that, that's the biggest thing is I can't stay anywhere too long. A lot of how I came to where I am now, I think, ties in nicely to what you look at, which is I kept searching for ways to make healthcare better. And I started in large systems. I spent some time after medical school, after residency at Montefiore, where I learned a lot, ultimately felt that moving within that large working system couldn't get quite done what I wanted to get done. After that, I ended up managing the health care for the jails in New York. As with some mm. partners, we provided all the medical care, which was a very interesting system of care, but a very difficult and fractured, I would say a failed environment. After that, I went to United Healthcare, saying the payer side is really influencing decisions Learned a lot. Fascinating company. I think they do great work. But ultimately, the bar is going to be moved by the smaller companies doing interesting things. What drew me to Talkspace is it was a smaller company doing a really interesting thing and really going outside of what the traditional model for what care was. And behavioral health has had probably the least amount of innovation in healthcare. And therapy, the last innovator might have been Freud. (laughs) Well, good. I want to get into that. We generally start this show with a a question kind of on the macro level of what's wrong with our healthcare system from a financial perspective. But one thing we don't talk about very often is another challenge within our healthcare system, which is access to care and specifically access to behavioral health care. There are some statistics out there that suggest 43 million Americans have a mental health condition, yet 57% of, of American adults have not received treatment. Furthermore, we have a huge documented increase in stress and anxiety in young adults. 
which you know might be categorized as our, our millennial population, but I think it's broader than that. So tell us in your opinion, you know, what's wrong with our healthcare delivery system in general, or if you want to focus on mental and behavioral health, well, that's fine as well. One is we don't focus on prevention enough in society. I don't even know if I'd call that a health system problem is more of a societal problem. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about young people is we're not doing enough and they end up needing us. Good for business, not great for society. The goal is, is really not to get so many people to a point where they need behavioral health care. Uh, we can make the argument that there was a need and there was more stigma 10 years ago. I would make the argument that there's more of a need now and the need is increased. And what are we doing wrong about need? But more to talk about the things that we can influence today, which is access. Sometimes people like to bundle it into one solution, one problem. Maybe it's stigma. Maybe it's cost. What I found throughout my career is it's a combination and it's really death by paper cuts. So for some people, stigma is alive and well. I live on the Upper West Side. If you're not in therapy, that's a stigma. So (laughs) there are pockets of the country where the military population, where there is still an incredible amount of shame, they will not go into an office. So breaking down those barriers for that cohort becomes important. For others, there's cost. It's a pure cost issue where maybe there is access. So in New York, it's a cash pay world where most behavioral health don't take insurance and an increasing amount of OBs don't take insurance and primary care docs don't take insurance. So there's an access point there. For others, it may be co-pays. I'm in the class I teach at St. Francis, one of the most interesting things, I always start the year by saying, how much is your copay? And one young lady raised her hand and said she has a $65 primary care copay, which for due to parity, that's going to be the same for behavioral health. People aren't going to go to doctor even with insurance. If you're looking at a copay like that or a high deductible plan where you're on the hook for the first $3,000. So for some, it's cost. And then even behavioral health and primary care, it's who you get. So I always ask people, how do you choose your physicians? So how do you choose your physician? You know, to be honest, I have a virtual primary care physician. It was selected for me, you know, via the service. I use a company who we've interviewed on this podcast, Sherpa. I don't get sick very often, so I haven't had too many interactions. So I guess it wasn't a very scientific way that I selected that physician. What I would say is, is that you're going to a company that's focused on customer service as opposed to people, large health systems, which have never had that focus or are starting now to have that focus or individual practitioners who really, they're doctors, they weren't trained to have that focus. The typical person's experience, a little bit like yours, but is they either are calling someone from the phone book, they're going down their provider list from a website, a friend is recommending them, unclear what that's even based on at times, and they show up and that's their person. Now, for primary care, probably can get away with that as long as the person meshes with you a little or you feel they're competent or you don't utilize them very much. Doesn't always work works a little better. For behavioral health, people are coming in, they're talking about things, affairs, drug addiction, failures that they consider in life, problems with their children. And it's someone who their selection process is really who calls them back first or who can compete on price. So that's another piece is how do we identify who's going to be a fit for you? Because in healthcare, whoever you go to, 
if you don't bond with them, you're not going to listen to them. I always think about how we, our careers were influenced. If you ask someone how they end up doing what they're doing, often there was a teacher they bonded with. Yet in healthcare, we never really focused on the match. And, you know, at Talkspace, that's one of the things we've started to focus, we've focused on from the beginning is trying to figure out how do we find the therapist that's going to be sticky for you that you're going to be comfortable with. So there are many other reasons, but from a large macro environment, the reasons people don't get care are probably one of 20 with the decision tree of hundreds, and we can only address them piece by piece. And there's no one solution which is going to solve this. Well, I think that was a pretty good explanation. And I, and I do like the analogy, you know, death by a thousand, you know, paper cuts. I think when in healthcare, sometimes that's what it feels like. Let's move into the, the talk space, you know, product and service. And, and so describe it to us and, and tell us specifically what, you're, what the model is attempting to solve. I think I illustrated a couple of things. So we look at the world in terms of cost, access, match being the primary things that we're trying to look at. So we want people to get care when they need it. Typically in behavioral health, it may take someone two to six weeks to get an appointment. We want people to get treatment within 12 hours, often quicker. So one, when you're suffering, waiting two weeks often makes it worse. And that's really not doing service. Whole products such as employee assistance, EAP programs were designed to give people immediate care, yet there's still waits of several weeks for a whole product that the goal was intervention quickly. So really solving for that is the number one. How do we increase access? Two, we want to be at a reasonable price point. We want to be accessible to as many people as possible. Also understanding that these are licensed professionals and access to them does have some cost associated. We want to come in at a price point that as many people as possible can afford it and working through payers, really expanding the scope of people we can work with. And then that match is giving people the choice in an easy way by based on their preferences. If I want a female therapist who specializes in trauma, I can show you three female therapists that specialize in trauma in a state that you're in. You can read their bio, you can watch their video, you can learn about them. And Choose the one that you think is going to be best. And if you're not happy, click a button and switch. No matter how good we get at this, we want to have some percentage of people that switch because no one's perfected that. If they did, Match.com would buy it and <laughs> basically everyone else would be out of business. So we want to encourage you if the bond isn't there and our algorithm isn't perfect, find the next person who really is going to be perfect for you. And sometimes along the way in treatment, you decide... I thought I wanted this, but I didn't really want it. I wanted something else. I thought I wanted cognitive behavioral, very structured. Now that I got homework, I'm not doing it. I want to move to someone who's a little more insight oriented. Our model, what's really attracted me to Talkspace and interesting is our primary mode of therapy is asynchronous. It's messaging therapy. So we've taken away the inconvenience of traveling to appointments and even the inconvenience of having a scheduled appointment. Scheduled appointments, lots happen, such as me being late to your podcast because I couldn't make the technology work. So here, at any point, you can pull out your phone, your tablet, your computer, write a message, send a recording, send a picture, send the video to your therapist, and your therapist will respond in kind five days a week with set hours that you can expect a response. So for people raising kids, Busy lives, people who travel a lot, 
they can now have access to their provider on their terms. And what's also interesting, just to really solidify it for people, is think about someone who might be having an anxiety attack or a panic attack. In the yep. moment, they can record themselves having an attack. They can list those symptoms in a moment while they're fresh in their mind, rather than waiting a week or two weeks to say, last Tuesday I had an attack. What was it like? I don't really remember. I think I was sweating. How long? About 30 minutes. Turns out it was two hours. And in the moment they're doing that. And then that same day, their therapist might give them a video of deep breathing and say, record your deep breathing to me. Send them a video that next day. They may give them feedback. Hey, you know, the belly breathing you're doing, your diaphragm isn't doing it in the right way. And allowing for that access on the client's terms really drives healthcare. And I'm a little bit traditional, so to me, going to an office isn't as big a deal, but really where society has moved, there's a lot less willingness and time to do those things. So I think it's really meeting people where they are. Depending on where you live, it's hard to get from maybe point A to point B, you know, especially you live in a you know, place like New York or LA, Getting from where your work site is to, you know, home, you know, where your provider is, sometimes that's challenging, especially when you're juggling kids and other work responsibilities. So it sounds like a person signs up for this online via their phone, tablet, whatever, and you guys are doing a match process. What things are you asking for from the patient in order to make that match happen between the patient with what their need is and a provider who's qualified to treat them? One, we want to make this as painless as possible. We don't want this to feel like you're filling out what, when I used to go to doctors, you'd get that five-page clipboard questionnaire. So there's a balance in trying to figure out what are the essential questions that we need versus what are just information we can get later. Mm -hmm. So on the front end, we want to know, do you want to work with a male, female, what's your gender preference? Um, we also want to know what your problem is. Why are you here? Are you here for depression? Are you here for trauma? Are you here for relationships? You need someone who specializes in relationship counseling because that's going to allow us on our back end to find a therapist that specializes in your need. We want to know your age. Um, that's important, A, in terms of matching you to the right therapist. Sometimes age does matter. We also want to know if you're an adolescent because there are some state rules about consent and how we're going to involve your parents in treatment. So all those things and a couple of other questions, one about your medical, you have medical problems, there's something we should be aware of. Sometimes medical problems can cause depression. So we want to know, is there something that we should look for? Do you need a referral to a psychiatrist, which we've started offering on the platform? So getting that information. Then what we want to do is take that information and go to our back end and find, offer you three therapists that best meet your needs, who we've looked at their data and have been successful at treating your complaint. So we monitor and track treatment. One of my pain points when I was at United Healthcare was, how do I know who's good? Right. And even as someone who's been in the healthcare field for quite a long time, you would think that that would be an easy question for me to answer. But it was hard. I'd often get on a plane, I'd visit providers, we'd try to do audits, we'd look at claims data, but it really wasn't quite everything that we hoped it was. And it was very tricky. It's very hard to tell. And the other thing that you see in healthcare is bad events are low base rates, meaning they don't happen that often. So mm -hmm. we're fortunate that even though there are unfortunately a lot of suicides for the typical therapist, they may have one, two or three in their whole career. 
So judging them on bad outcomes doesn't really get to whether they're doing a good job because there's an element of luck or unluckiness in who your clients are. Sometimes you give great treatment and someone self-harms and sometimes the treatment isn't so good and people do okay. So it's very hard to know. So we measure treatment through use of tools. And what I mean by tools are for depression, there's an instrument called the PHQ-9. It's a nine question index. And over time, we track it. So on your first day on the platform, you take it, you get a score. And over time, every about three weeks or so, you get that same tool. And over time, we measure how you're doing. One is it's great for you to see your improvement. Sometimes people need to see it, to feel it. Mm -hmm. It allows the therapist to get an idea of what they're seeing in treatment is gelling with how the client is feeling. And then on our back end, what it allows us to do is aggregate data. So if you're a therapist and I'm a therapist, we've both had 100 clients with depression If I have 78 of my clients have been in remission after my treatment and you only have 24 in remission, I'm going to be ranked higher than you in terms of therapists. And over time, I'm going to be offered to more clients. And if I'm a strong provider, I'm going to be full and I'm going to have a complete caseload. And if you're struggling, we're happy to coach you and try to help you be a better therapist. But if you don't improve, you're going to stop getting clients and you're not going to be on our platform. So we want to really take the user preference, that client preferences, and match them with the people who we see from a data perspective as being the most effective at helping you. One of the things that stands out to me immediately is, one, the the ability to capture data and feed it back to the provider to say, hey, this is how your patient is actually self-reporting. So giving the provider some indication of the efficacy, right, of the treatment. Whereas in a regular office environment, I mean, is that really happening? That sort of feedback? I mean, maybe it is, but I think to be able to capture the data and build in some quality metrics based on actual experience is pretty neat. It's interesting. It's not happening regularly in practice. And what I would even go so far as to say is it's where we are now, but it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is it's subject to some biases, which is it's a self-reported mechanism. What's more interesting to me and where I see us going, but I also like to see medicine going and especially mental health care is to take the treatment itself. Since what we have is mostly chat and messaging. So we have a log of everything that's going on and it's safe harbored and we keep it safe and we protect it and we're HIPAA compliant, but that information exists. And what we do with it is, well, we don't look at it individually. I'm not pulling up your record and I actually can't pull up your record in any way. And only if there was a complaint, I would pull it up in a safe harbor, meaning it would scrub your name and any identifying data. But from an aggregate data perspective, what we'd like to do is using machine learning, and we've gone pr- come pretty far on this, but it's not ready for prime time, is be able to evaluate based on your messaging and give you a score in how you're doing. And that should compare really well to the tools we have now. Because one, even making surveys easy, people still have to fill them out. And honestly, I don't love filling out surveys. If I need to, I will fill them out, but I prefer not to. So one is it solves for making the experience a lot better because you don't have to fill them out and we don't mandate anyone fill them out. So you can bypass them. A good 20, 30% of the people bypass them. About 70% fill rate. So we're not capturing it. Second thing is, is it removes the bias 
that you have if you're having a bad day. Because if we're able to examine your treatment over the past month, what we might see is your sentiment is improving, that your functionality is improving. Mm-hmm. You're talking more about work, so you're more future-oriented or about a vacation. Maybe you were talking about how hopeless your life was when you started, and now you're more hopeful. And then we can start to measure those things and come at a way of monitoring treatment from a more objective way without you even having to fill out different form surveys and things and us tabulated and looking at it that way. So that's where I, I think we're, that's where we're going. And that's where I'd like to see more and more of healthcare. I assume that when a person engages with a therapist, I mean, they can, they can continue to engage with that therapist for the duration of treatment. There's no need to, to change, correct? Correct. And we encourage that the relationship is working. You shouldn't change. We hear a lot about the shortage of behavioral health providers in this country, the difficulty in access in, in getting access to care, whether it's with an insurance or behavioral health network, you know, hearing providers just simply don't want to take insurance anymore, right? So how is it that you are addressing this in a different way such that you're able to attract providers into your behavioral health network where other vendors aren't having as much success? So that's kind of comes to a couple of different points. So back to my background as an ec- economics major, it's a mismatch. There's a mismatch of supply and demand, and that's something that we've capitalized on. So you may have a provider in upstate rural New York who is half full because the community that they serve doesn't have enough people who need them, and they're half full because geographically they can't get enough clients to drive 50 miles to them. They have capacity. We may take that capacity. You may have a stay-at-home mom looking to do some work who can't go to an office or her childcare doesn't want to have childcare. The childcare is inconsistent and may have a couple of hours a week that they can now use. So we're drawing from all sorts of different places, therapists, capacity, extra time. Most of the therapists on our platform do this as one of the things they do. A couple do it full time, but the majority do it somewhere between 20% and 40% of their time. And we're finding capacity that otherwise wasn't being utilized. And the lack of having to make appointments, we do offer video, but that's a much smaller component of our utilization. But for most people, we're finding time that otherwise was going unused. So for therapy, psychiatry is a little bit different, and I'll touch on that. But for Mm -hmm. therapy, there actually isn't as big a shortage as people think there's more of a capacity and economic mismatch. So people not taking insurance may have extra capacity. They may be willing to work with us to use some of those hours that are dead hours if we can help them fill dead hours. So we don't look at there being a therapist shortage. There are, I forget the number, but probably over a half million therapists in this country. They're just very poorly matched to the need and aligned with where the need is. So we're capitalizing on it. Psychiatry is very different. There is a shortage of psychiatrists. We've built a network. It's very difficult to build a network in psychiatry because there is a shortage. And psychiatry is still appointment-based, so you're bound by those video constraints. I would imagine some people might have some skepticism around the effectiveness of text-based therapy. So do you have any clinical studies or evidence that text-based therapy can be as effective or more effective as in-person therapy? Absolutely. We are big on working with researchers. I think we're up to 
about 15 research partners from universities well-known to most, Duke, NYU, Columbia, Stanford. We do some out west. And we've studied the effectiveness of messaging therapy. We have several peer-reviewed articles, and we have several ongoing studies. The largest study we did looked at about 11,000 people receiving treatment on Talkspace for between 6 and 12 weeks with anxiety and depression measured by that PHQ-9 I mentioned for depression Mm -hmm. and something called the GAD-7 for anxiety, which measures anxiety. And what we found were rates of remission somewhere between 65 and 75%. What that means is that's pretty good. And if you take your practitioner across the street and look at their rates, it's on par based on all the research with what they're doing. And what I would say is, is that you may lose something by not sitting in someone's office, but you gain a lot by not sitting in someone's office. So we're not looking to put that person out of business I look at it as there's a self-selection of people for what they want. And for the people who are looking for this treatment, they do really well. For the people who are looking for treatment in an office space, they do really well in office space. Mm-hmm. And we're, we continue to iterate on our studies and look at how we can show effectiveness in different diseases and different treatments. Um, we just completed a study on post-traumatic stress. And it sort of goes back to that stigma of military. What we found was we had a very high effectiveness and the effectiveness was dictated by fewer dropouts because what we find is, is that people coming to our platform because of that, I wouldn't call it identity because we're not anonymous, but that really veiled confidentiality that you can do this from your home, never be seen in a waiting room are we at fewer dropouts than traditionally an office-based post-traumatic stress program would have? I think that makes sense though. I mean, the travel time and you know the time away from work, those can be real barriers to people, let alone the stigma, right? So to be able to just do it from your phone and people are on their phone all the time. Who's to know that you aren't on Facebook versus texting with your therapist, right? So going back to the access and meeting people where they are, I think it's a, it's a phenomenal method to connect with people. You know, you guys are fairly new, been around for a couple of years, right? So do you have any case studies of how you've already seen some reported improvements in outcomes from any, for any of your clients? First, I'm going to go back to the research studies. And we have a study that looked at workplace outcomes. It looked at many of the traditional things that you would want to measure that we measure from our employees, such as absenteeism, workplace satisfaction, and people who use Talkspace showed significant improvements in those key metrics that employers look at. Number one thing is you can't do good work if you don't show up. So things like showing up and feeling good about their job. The other thing we found with our employers is, is that by offering certain benefits, and Talkspace is one of them, but there's a host of things you as an employer can really offer as you move into that mental health arena that can really help your employees. It's very stressful to be at work. I look at my father's career. He's had two jobs. He's 73. And uh, for me, I have more than two jobs in 10 years. Life is much more stressful. Everyone fears layoffs. They fear the company's well-being. They feel their well-being. And there's a lot more stress and the workplace environment is different. And I worry about what it'll look like for my children, because if we're switching jobs at a much higher rate and there's a lot more uncertainty. What will it be? Will it be worse for them or will the pendulum swing back? 
So given that, offering to employees becomes very valuable. And what we've seen, which has been even sometimes surprising to us, is employers who have offered Talkspace as a benefit is how high the penetration is. You would expect that when you think EAP utilization is somewhere under 1%, a typical behavioral health benefit utilization in a year, 3%, maybe five would be high. We've had some employers where we've hit double digits, where 10 to 15% of the employees are taking advantage of this and saying, I can be helped by this. This can make my life better. And that's really been fascinating. And I'm not sure, at least I didn't think that we would hit double digits with any client we work with. And it's been really amazing. And the other thing that's been amazing is how happy the clients are and not saying, oh, my God, I can't believe all our employees need this help. They're happy that they're utilizing it. Let's talk about the consumer experience. I would imagine being a technology-based um, organization that you guys are measuring patient satisfaction with the, the service and with the therapists. What are you uh, using to kind of track that metric? So we use a couple of things, but it's funny you mentioned consumer. As someone who comes from institutional healthcare, so maybe from part of the problem, is being in the consumer market first, and we entered the consumer market a couple, we initially entered the consumer market, we didn't move into the business, the B2B market until about two, two and a half years ago, is it's a very, very painful, relentless place. If people are unhappy, they make it known, they will go on Twitter, they will go on Facebook, and if you upset them, they are relentless. And it's almost refreshing I don't like it when someone's unhappy and we do our best to keep everyone happy, but I don't like that they go to Twitter. I'd rather they come to us. We can usually solve it. But that pressure is really amazing. And it's not something I was used to in the institutional healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought it up just because I think that it's been quite a learning experience for me. And we've taken that and that relentless focus on the experience and used it for our enterprise clients and our payer or commercial behavioral health client. And it's been quite interesting. So we do some traditional NPS and then we survey our clients. And the biggest, most useful thing is a one question for people leaving is why are you leaving? Or if you're switching from your therapist, why are you switching? Yeah. And a little bit of free text to enrich the answers. Like a lot of very personalized services, while anecdotal and on the individual level, it doesn't tell you much. NBS is helpful, by the way. Let's sort of use that as a table stakes. But getting that granular information, people feel very personal about things such as their doctor, their therapist, maybe if they have a nanny. So you get a very rich feedback. And if people aren't happy, they are very specific and they are very detailed and they make it known. If they're happy, they often give you very specific, very detailed so while the typical metrics of NPS are great, to me, it's really the feedback that's granular and verbal that I value the most. And we get a lot of it, mostly good, honestly, yeah. occasionally bad, but the bad is really where it gives us the opportunity to improve as well. So it's really important. The bad you know, becomes the raw material for uh, you know, future improvements. What is your average NPS score to date? So... I'm trying to remember. It is somewhere around on the consumer. I get confused 
which is our therapist NPS and our consumer, but it's about 50. And you might be thinking, well, 50 isn't that high. I think 50 is good. I mean, if you're if you're looking at most people's experience, which is through a traditional carrier, I mean, NPS scores are you know quite low. Yeah, but 15 rather, to negative. Well, we aspire to be an Apple or an Amazon, mm-hmm. and we're not there. And we often ask ourselves why we're not there. So there are a couple of reasons. One is we can always do better. The second is, is there's a funny thing about therapy, and I'm not sure, you know, since we're probably the only ones doing this, that's a therapy company, or we don't really have a great comparison, is I'm not sure what the number should be. There's a funny thing about therapy. You come to my office and you say you like therapy, and then you complain about your mother-in-law. And what you're looking for may be therapy, or it may be validation that your mother-in-law is a terrible person and you're <laughs> at fault. So, Some of the complaints we get, which I wouldn't call complaints that are actionable, are basically my therapist didn't agree with me. Right. Right. They're not really ready for therapy. So I don't use this as an excuse, but I don't think we're ever going to hit Apple because there's something funny about the therapeutic experience, which is sometimes good treatment is exactly what someone doesn't want. They want validation. And I, you know, I'd love to come up with my mind of what our benchmark should be. We say Apple, but I, I think it's easier in a way for Apple to deliver. And maybe our number should be 60, maybe it should be 70. But we definitely have a subset of people who leave, some of whom complain and will look at the complaint and it sort of falls in this bucket of they got really good treatment but they didn't get what they wanted, but we're not able to give them what they want. I think that's a pretty good explanation. I think uh, it is nuanced relative to maybe some other you know, aspects or other uh, types of services within the healthcare uh, spectrum. So I, I think that makes sense. Let's talk about fee structure. So how are you guys structured? Is it a PEPM or other arrangement? Um, we're structured in a lot of different ways. So I'll go through them very quickly. Yep. So one, our direct-to-consumer is a subscription model. So you come in, you can buy, we offer several plans. Some include live video and some are messaging only. And you choose your plan, you pay for the month. In terms of businesses, we work with employers. That tends to look more like a PEPM. Mm -hmm. And it's generally offered to the population. And one of the things that we want is we want to really work with any company on marketing, because one thing we know how to do well is destigmatize marketing. Michael Phelps is our brand ambassador. I'm very proud. My kids are very happy because two of them are swimmers, so they're very proud. But it's all in a way to make mental health acceptable, maybe a little bit cool, but really destigmatize it. So we want to be involved in that and we want to drive utilization. And we're pretty knowledgeable about that. And I think a lot of employers aren't so sure how to do it. What's the right messaging? And then we work with EAP, so Employee Assistance Programs and Health Plans, and those are really a session-based, more traditional model, really based on utilization. The product doesn't look that different from one to the other, but because of where it fits in the ecosystem is you're probably not going to use your Aetna or United Health session based if you're not dealing with depression. While you might use your employer base if you work for a large employer, if you're going through some strife with a manager. So the fee structures are different, but also the uses tend to, they blend a little, but they tend to change a little as we go through the various markets. 
Sure. You mentioned something um, that I want to ask about. You know, you guys like to take over the marketing and market it in a, a different way. So a program like this, it's it's great if you're getting enough utilization, right? And, and typically the utilization of, of uh, EAPs are, are very low and, and general behavioral health services within the network. So what are you guys specifically doing that's different to drive that engagement and awareness and ultimately, you know, support that utilization? So I'm going to break it into two pieces. So piece one is, and it really looks different for every cohort. So for some of our college work, working with fraternities or most recently colleges, it might be doing having some sort of Q&A with college kids and a therapist or going to campus or going to an event. So it might look like that. For an employer, it could be messaging a newsletter that's not are you feeling depressed? Here's talk space. It's, it's fall, Thanksgiving. Here are some of the things. Sometimes family time is stressful. Here are some tips. So more softer, hey, we're here, but we're not. You need it. The, the big failure to me of EAP has been is you're struggling at work. You're not doing well. Go get some counseling. So really trying to take each market and look at how do we really say we're here we're acceptable, and when you need us, we're available, and message it that way and use marketing campaigns that sometimes include celebrities where appropriate, who really can carry that message about behavioral health is really important. You said marketing campaign. And so are you equipping the employer to do the marketing campaign, or are you actually asking them for their employees' contact information and then kind of doing marketing campaigns throughout the year? We generally will equip them with information, but sometimes it's as specific as us giving them the whole campaign to disseminate. Um, Generally, we feel employers should really be the ones communicating directly with their employees. Mm -hmm. We would like some access. If there's an event, we love a table. We are happy to go. We've gone and had activation and given out, you know, the typical type of swag that people love and done some of that. But it really is what's the employer comfortable with. I don't think we've had where we have any employee lists where we're really sending it. So it's really running through the employer, but we're trying to curate it. And they definitely have a vote and a say, and as they should, because they know their employees well, and we need that know-how about what their employee population is to kind of help direct us. There are things such as if they want posters, if they want collateral, they can tell us. Tell us what you want and we're happy to send it. We want to give them some control. We don't want to own it, but we definitely want to have a voice because we don't want it to fall, the message to fall dead. You guys are a relatively new vendor in the marketplace, right? I mean, how many years have you been providing services? So we've been in business for almost seven, about seven, but we've been in the enterprise space for probably about two and a half at this point. So new to this space. Okay. All right. And so how many clients and members do you currently have right now? I actually couldn't even tell you how many clients because it's such a smorgasbord of different books from big employer to small. What I can say is we work with three of the five largest managed care organizations We work with several Greek organizations and colleges, and I couldn't even honestly tell you how many employers it is, several large ones and a lot of mid and small size ones growing every day. There's no target 
you know, market really, I mean, really this is, this is for anyone who has employees, you know, that, um, and there's no barriers from a, from a size standpoint then. It would be hard for us to work with very small employers. Sometimes they're often nowadays being aggregated through benefit managers. Mm -hmm. So we do work with a couple of those. It would be pretty hard for us if someone said, I have seven employees for us to have a plan. It would be more buy vouchers. But we do work with relatively small size. And by small, 1,000 or 2,000 is definitely a size that we can work with. 100 would be much harder at this point at where we're at. And we could probably figure some, we would figure something out, but there would be less on the customization side. What are you most excited about right now in the business? Any improvements or enhancements that you'd want to make the listeners aware of? I really am excited with how we're trying to use data to make it better. And what I mean by that is I iterated a little bit on some of that, for example, with the surveys. But what our real goal and the real crux of what we're trying to accomplish is, is to give therapists tools to make therapy better. So we want to take these therapists and have them practice how they're comfortable, but give them things. So if it's that they want tracks, so they want to do cognitive behavioral therapy and they want modules that can run alongside, give them that. If it's giving them insights, so it might be something as simple as for this client, sending a message now will help increase the odds of them completing treatment. So trying to give them, use the data that we know and give therapists insights, it's going to have your experience as a client be better, which ultimately should lead to better engagement with your therapist and better outcomes and most most important, quicker outcome. Because one of the big value propositions we find is, and I think the modality that daily communication lends itself to it is, is that we're able to really establish that bond with a therapist quicker mm-hmm. and we want it to be even faster. And we want what took traditionally 12 weeks to take eight weeks on our platform because people are in a lot of pain, they're suffering. And if we can make them feel better a week, two weeks, three weeks earlier, to me, that's a huge value that we can really provide. I've already demoed the Talkspace service for a number of uh, clients. I think it's a great service. You know, you're filling a gap in the marketplace and hopefully this episode will get you guys some additional exposure out there. If there are people interested in learning more about Talkspace, where can they go to get in touch with uh, someone from the company? www.talkspace.com and send us a media inquiry or a business inquiry and we'll answer you very quickly. We'll message you. You'll message him. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, Neil, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's been a great, uh, insightful uh, interview and, and hopefully uh, provide some value for our audience. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You bet. All right. And to our listeners, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Talkspace's website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content we're bringing to you on the show. Let us know what you think with a review. It's super easy and takes five seconds. Just open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page, scroll down to the bottom of the page and let us know what you think with a review. Thanks again and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.